The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. Good to see you. So we're going to, uh, we got quite the task ahead. We're going to do all of John chapter 3 uh, this morning. So you can turn there in your Bibles. Um, and uh, I want to share, kind of just begin with a, a story. Uh, this weekend, my oldest daughter and I uh, participated in Mission Connection, which is this great annual conference uh, that's hosted by uh, local Portland churches. Uh, just casting a vision for global mission uh, for the, uh, the body of Christ here in Portland. And, and uh, one of the speakers is a, a gal who I've, um, I read her, her book several years ago. It was really helpful for me. Her name is uh, Becky Pippert. Uh, she wrote a book. It was like the, whatever, like the bestseller of like 1979 of Christian books. And you guys read uh, Out of the Salt Shaker? Do you, you remember that, that book? Um, so it's, right, had had less influence perhaps uh, lately, um, but it's been significantly influential. It's all about uh, a lifestyle of evangelism as opposed to the used car salesman approach or the shotgun wedding to Jesus approach or the Bible thumper beat you up uh, approach, all those different ways that, uh, that we've kind of learned, no, that's not the way that Jesus loved people into the kingdom and that's not the way that we're called to. Um, so she was, she was talking about that uh, in, the, in the 1970s, and I, I didn't realize, but she had actually ministered on the campus of Reed College when she was a, a college student, and that's kind of where she, she learned how to, uh, how to talk to secular people. Um, and so anyway, she's, she's sharing, and uh, she shares this, this story that connects with our, our text this morning, and with all of the misunderstandings and I think offensiveness of the term born again. Okay? and kind of how that's used in our, in our culture. So she's sharing this story, and, and, and she's an old, older woman now, right? And, and um, she's looking for a new hairdresser. And she, she talks to a friend. She says, oh, you got to go visit my, uh, my, my hairdresser. Uh, her name is, uh, was it Martha? It was Mary. There, I'm mixing up Martha's and Mary's. It was Mary. And she's like, oh, okay. And so she makes an appointment, makes an arrangement. Make sure you go see Mary. And she shows up at the salon, and Mary's not there, but Martha's available. Uh, so she's like, well, will you see Martha? And she's wondering, well, did, do they have a brother named Lazarus? Like, this is really interesting. Uh, but sure, I'll go see, uh, I'll go see Martha. And, and, and so she's happy with her haircut, and she's, so she begins to go back to her uh, several times, and, and she's just, she loves Jesus, and she shares her life as she bubbles over with her joy, she shares Jesus, right? And so she's getting to know her, her hairdresser, getting, asking her questions about her life. And, and, and she says the first time that she was there, her, uh, her hairdresser kind of was talking about her family. And she whispered over, she's like, yeah, I, I have a, a younger brother. And he's, you know, one of those, one of those born-again Christians. And, and it's this term, right, that, that comes with all this baggage of you know those types, Right? And, and so, so Becky has to kind of, in her own way, share, well, yeah, uh, I, I believe in Jesus, and, 
and that's actually kind of my job. Like I, I, <laughs> I teach people how to share Jesus. Um, and, and so in a, a later visit, the, um, the gal is sharing, how, yeah, my younger brother, man, he's read like every Christian book out there. Like he just is always reading all this Christian stuff. And, and she goes, huh, you know, as a matter of fact, I actually write a bunch of Christian books. I've written about, about a dozen of them. And, and some of them are bestsellers. And she's like, really? I mean, he's like, yeah, well, ask him if he's ever read Out of the Salt Shaker. And she's like, okay, I'll do that. So here's, here's the funny part. So she talks to her brother and, and says, hey, yeah, have you heard of this book, Out of the Salt Shaker? And he goes, what? That book changed my life. He's like, I read that nine years ago. It was seven. Thank you. My daughter has so much better memory than me. I, I, was, I was playing with those two numbers. Keep, keep helping me out. Keep helping me out if you need to. Okay, seven years ago, that changed my life. No, actually, I'm joking because she will. It's, that's enough. We'll talk afterwards. <laughs> and so she's like, yeah, that, I read it seven years ago. It changed my life. And, and he's like, but how do you know about it? And, and she goes, well, I'm cutting her hair. <laughs> and he's like, really? You're cutting Becky Pippert's hair? That's amazing. And then, and then the, the brother shares the story. He says, this is why it was so impactful for me. He says, and, so, and she describes how on the phone he starts crying. She's like, why are you crying? And, and she said, and the brother says, he said, I read the book, and after I finished it, I got on my knees, and I said, God, would you send a woman with a personality like Becky to go talk to my sister? <laughs> and he's like, God, please, please, would you? So he's been praying for his sister all these years, and then he's like, but I didn't think he'd actually send her Becky Pickford herself, right? <laughs> so, so, now, as, as Becky's getting to know her more and sharing Jesus with her, this, this woman experiences and becomes one of these born-again Christians, right? And, and so, and the, the guy was engaged, and so she invites Becky to her wedding and sits Becky next to her brother. And, and so, a story of, right, God's timing, right? And apparently God couldn't find anyone else with a personality like her, so he had to send her, <laughs> Becky, herself, um, Awesome talk. Look up the missionconnection.org, uh, I think, is uh, well li- listening to. But that term, that phrase, born again, what does it mean and what does it symbolize in our culture is that question I want to wrestle through. Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to read through all of John 3. I'm going to just make a, a few little comments as we go through it, and then we're going to end the sermon asking a few questions about what that 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 concept, that term isn't, what it is, and why it's essential. Okay, that's where we're going. Let's, let's start in prayer, though. Lord God, would you help me now as I, I teach through your scripture and as we wrestle with what it means to be born again and what it doesn't mean. Uh, God, help us. Uh, help us to, to, uh, to even experience that this morning, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, bring new life uh, to your people and to those who have not known it before. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we'll begin in John 3, uh, verse 1, and we're going to see this conversation that Jesus has. In John's gospel, he has seven significant conversations with people that are, are wrestling with who is Jesus. 
Verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So first thing to see here is he comes at night, and that, that, that's a picture probably of the, the secretiveness that he needs to address Jesus with, that he probably comes from a community of people that don't like born-again Christians, right? That, 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 don't, that don't believe in Jesus, don't trust him as Lord. And, and so he is beginning to seek Jesus. He is beginning to want to know who he is, but he has to come in secret. He can't talk to his community about it, right? He's this influential religious leader, um, but he's, he's wanting to explore who this Jesus is. I've, as I've, I've worked with uh, and made friends with Muslims over the, the years, I've found that, that in, in a larger group, they're gonna, they'll, they'll be like super zealous and defensive and even, even angry as they, they, they want to debate about God and Jesus and the Bible. And then when they're alone, they're hungry and eager to learn, right? They, they don't have to put up the strong face. They can actually begin to seek and explore. And so I think that's what Nicodemus is doing. And he's, but he's still in the shadows. He's still hiding. He's not willing to come to the light. Um, and he's asking, he's like, yeah, who, who are you? You come from God. But essentially, are you anything more than that? We know you're a teacher. We know you've done these amazing things. But are you more? Are you Messiah? Are you, uh, are you Savior? He's wondering that. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And if you have an ESV, it has that footnote where that word has multiple meanings, right? It can mean born from above or born again. And Jesus loves poetry. He loves puns. I wonder if, if he came today, he'd be like a beat poet or a hip-hop artist. Like, he just loves to play with words. That wasn't funny. That wasn't... I'm, I'm kind of serious. I'm kind of serious. So you're going to see it multiple times. There's these puns. There's these play on words through this passage. Um, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He totally misses it. It goes over his head. He's like, he's just thinking in the natural. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's defining more what this means. It's something from the Holy Spirit. It's something that brings cleansing and new life. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Your, your way of religion, your way of law-keeping, your, your way of trying to earn your way to God comes from the flesh, from your own strength. And this rebirth comes only from God, from his spirit. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows where it wishes, or again, this is a play on words. It's the same word for spirit, right? The spirit blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, or that also can mean voice. You can hear the spirit's voice. You can hear the wind's sound. It blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. You see the wind's effects. You see the effects of the spirit. You cannot control it. You cannot predict it. It's God's freedom. It's the, the free work of the Spirit. Now Nicodemus is wrestling through this, right? Nicodemus said to him, how can the, these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the, t 
teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And again, if you have an ESV, there's a, a footnote there speaking that the yous here are plural. And so just like Nicodemus came to him and said, we know that you're, uh, you're a teacher come from God. He's speaking of like both for his religious community, but I think also he's speaking for the readers. Like, like we know he's a good teacher. We know there's something amazing about this man, but is there something more? And so now Jesus is speaking, and, and John, the author, is, as he's writing and presenting this, he's, he's also now speaking for the, for the Christian witness that says, you know what, you, us all, those that are exploring Jesus but not sure about him, right? And, and it says the world did not receive his testimony. We, there's a resistance that we have to this message. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then that's that first piece where he talks about how that happens, right? How you, how you can experience that spiritual rebirth. And it's this, this kind of, uh, I mean, it's a strange image. You know, from the, the book of Numbers, it's this story that was within the, the, the traditions of the people of Israel. And they, and they knew that uh, the story of, of these, these serpents that, um, that were biting and killing God's people. And it, it brought a death and that, and that they cried out to God and said, okay, God, God, would you deliver us from these, uh, these serpents, these snakes? And it's this, right, this image, this picture of, of evil, of, uh, of death. And, and God does this weird thing. He tells uh, to Moses, okay, make a bronze image of a snake and put it on a pole. And those that look at this bronze image, they'll be healed. And it's like, what does that mean? And that's like a whole other sermon to dig into the background there. But it's this picture of, of looking, of faith, of saying, I don't understand this. I don't understand how looking at this, at this bronze bronze statue can heal me from this, this mortal wound that I have. But that is the invitation, is the look of faith and the, the trust in our hearts that leads to this eternal life. And this eternal life is not just a future life, but it's entering into the kingdom life of God, right? First, earlier in the chapter, it's kingdom of God language, and now it's going to move into eternal life language. And in you can't separate those things. They, they, they come together. It's life in the kingdom that will last forever. Life in the kingdom that begins now is lived out now and lasts forever. And now, in verse 16, this is probably, right, the most well-known Bible verse. And it fits right in here as he, this man is wrestling with who is Jesus. And Jesus says to him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. 
Just a couple points from John 3.16. The display of God's love is in what he would sacrifice for the world. Right? So it's the sacrifice of the son. Paul says it like this in Romans 8, right? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will we not also with him give us all things? If, if he did the unthinkable, the impossible, then he, if we can trust him for all the little things, right? Does God love me? Does God like me? Does God want to be with me? He says, this is how much I love you, right? He, he stretches out his hands on the cross. I love you this much. This is the giving of the son. And then the other piece of the display of the extent of God's love is that it's not, it's not just for the nation of Israel. It's not for God so loved his people or God loved his elect, his chosen ones. It says he loved the world. The love of God is displayed in the full extent of the world. And in John's literature, in the gospel and his, his, his writings, the world is always in rebellion against God. This is the world system. This is people that are, that are, are in active rebellion against God, actively rejecting him and his truth. And God comes to us in that place while we're still enemies, and he dies for us, right? While we're still enemies. That's the extent and wonder of God's love. Now it's going to come in this image of light and darkness. I'll start again in verse 19. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's this picture of God's judgment is, is that he shines light. And we're living in the shadow. When we have shame, right, we, we hide, we, we cover up. And the light, it, it's an invitation, right? But the invitation is you, is you have to be willing to step into that light. And the judgment is, if you have shame, if you, if you have to hide from God, you, the, the light exposes it. And you say, I don't want the light. I need to run from the light. And the good news of, of this spiritual rebirth, and we're going we're gonna to get there more at the end, is that he does the washing. Right? It's, it's kind of like you wake up in the morning and you are not fit for public right, display. <laughs> right? You get up, you gotta, you got to prepare yourself to get out into the world in multiple respects, right? And, man, that brings a flashback to, I'm, I'm living in Hawaii, we're, we're church planting, I'm, I'm kind of a newlywed, and it's my birthday, and my wife has this wonderful idea to surprise me for my birthday by inviting the church to come at like 5.30 a.m. into our house and have a big party. And she's going to cook me this wonderful breakfast, and they're all going to be really quiet, and I'm just going to like open the bedroom door and step out into the living room and like, surprise! Oh, man. Oh, 
haven't thought about that. It's like flashbacks. Okay, so it's like that, right? You're not ready to see the world or have the, the church show up in your living room, right? Okay. I, I love you, dear. That was actually, it was not as bad as it sounded. But this promise of spiritual rebirth is God saying, I'm going to take away your shame. I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to give you new life so that you have nothing to to be ashamed of, so that you can step out. And, and, And the cleansing is already done. It's been done for you. And he's saying all of your work to try to get ready to be seen by the world, it doesn't work when you're stepping out to see God. Right? In his holiness, in his, in his glory, right? He's the one, right? The, the church is invited over. And like, like nothing that we do gets us ready to open that bedroom door and be like, here I am, God. He has to do that work. He has to prepare us for himself. Now we're going we're gonna to change scenes. And we're going to see a contrast between uh, this guy Nicodemus who's seeking, I think he's really genuine, but he's still in the shadows. He's not willing to come into the light. And then you're going to see John, John the Baptist, who has come into the light, and he's basking in it. He loves it. Verse 22, and after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. This was right, really big in Jewish religion and Jewish culture. Purification. How can you be washed clean? And a lot of the exterior washings, right, tried to deal with the heart but couldn't. I remember a conversation with an Ethiopian uh, Muslim background believer who was a follower of Jesus and an evangelist. And he says, he says I, go, I, I talk to my, my Muslim brothers and I, I, I tell them, okay, you wash, right? And they have to go, every time they go to the mosque, every time they say their prayers, they have to wash. And he's like, okay, you, you sin with your hands, what do you do? And he said, oh, you wash your hands. Yeah, you, okay, you, uh, you sin with your words, what do you do? Oh, you wash your mouth. He says, what do you do when you sin with your heart? And they go, I don't know. I don't know, what do we do? And he says, come back tomorrow, I will tell you. That, that, that's what they wrestle with. What do we do with our hearts? How do we get clean? Right? Verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, right? He's performing ceremonial washings for people, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. There is, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, he's just overflowing with joy. They're saying, and kind of get, get the context. These are these, uh, uh, John is a rabbi, right? And his disciples, his, his followers, they have prestige because their rabbi has prestige. It's like, well, I studied under so-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, PhD so-and-so, right? I studied under so-and-so rabbi. And they're like, wow, you're really great. You're something. And so they're really disturbed. 
because the rabbi that they chose is losing his following to this other rabbi, to Jesus. And they're like, God, John, John, you got to work on your PR. This is not working well. People are, are not receiving your baptism. They're, they're going to Jesus. And his disciples are baptizing them. Ah, come on. We've got to we'll work on something. And, and he's like, guys, it's not about me. I'm not worried about losing my following. In fact, this is the plan from the beginning. I must decrease. He must increase. And he says, and my joy, this is my joy is complete. He has a joy in seeing Jesus honored and seeing Jesus meet his bride, meet his people, right? That goes back to the image of, of Jesus has to prepare his bride for himself, and he's doing that. And John's just stoked. He loves that. In verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. And this is probably now uh, the author, John, speaking to us. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he, he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. In John's gospel, there's always a dichotomy. There's always this, this contrast, right, from, from heaven or from earth, these different perspectives. He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In coming to Jesus, in receiving his word, he doesn't hold back his spirit, right? Like, this, this is this idiom. He does not measure out and apportion his spirit. He's, it's not like, like you're, you're baking and you're like, okay, don't put too much of that. You've got to measure it out. Okay, you get this much, you get this much. He doesn't measure. It floods out. It pours out. John 4, John 7 speaks about the Holy Spirit like a, a river, like a raging, roaring river, living and alive that flows out of people's hearts. Or this, this water that we come to drink and be satisfied. He says, there's no end to it. It doesn't just get, he, he's, not, um, he's not a miser when it comes to sharing the abundance of his spirit with his people. That's good news. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So that's our text. That's the, the, the good news that we have presented to us. Now, just with the, the few minutes we have remaining, I want to dig in and focus in on this theme of being born again. What, what doesn't it mean? What does it mean? And, and why is it foundational? Why is it essential? Why, it, why, if we miss this, we miss it all when it comes to knowing Jesus. So first, what it doesn't mean. And I, I think immediately of, of that story that, that Becky tells of the, he's a born-again Christian. Right? That that the idea that this can be a label that then characterizes someone's cultural, political, and religious viewpoints. Now, I, I understand kind of why that label kind of historically emerged and that, that Christians that, or that identify as evangelicals that value 
people experiencing conversion and genuine transformation, like, okay, I understand that that's, that label kind of applied, and, and some of you may feel comfortable using that label to describe yourself. But here, here's the problem with it, right? You can, you can use the label, I'm a Christian, right? We could say you can be a confessing Christian, you can be a confessing born again, right, in quotation marks, and you cannot know God at all, and have never met Jesus, and have never experienced a spiritual rebirth, right? And at the same time, and I've experienced this in the, in the Muslim world, you can have a vital, powerful, life-transforming relationship with Jesus so that you, you proclaim his name at, at, to the face of persecution and arrest, imprisonment, and death, and yet you do not self-identify with the label Christian or born again. It doesn't work as a label because it's talking about an inner heart reality that we cannot measure. Right? Man measures. We, we look at people. We, we write doctrinal statements. We, we, we create our camps. And they, oh, these people in this camp. No. No, no. This reality, spiritual rebirth, transcends the camps and the labels that people form, whether it's, it's our own self-made labels or it's the labels that the world puts on us, okay? Both of them are unsatisfactory to get at the heart of this reality. So whatever label you want to use to describe yourself, born again is not a good label. It's a work of God that he has to do in our hearts, now, as I think about, here's the other weakness of this as a, as a, as a label, and, and also just what it doesn't mean. In the, in the secular culture, as, as secular people try to make sense of why are there still Christians in the world, right? That, that, that's a problem for the secular worldview, because they, they're so convinced that they have moved past that backwards thinking, right, and that archaic medieval type of, of thinking, that it doesn't make sense to them that there's genuinely, like, balanced, intelligent, thoughtful people that still believe in the Bible, right? That, like, a well-balanced person, like, that just doesn't make sense that you, you take this seriously. So th that's a problem that the secular world wrestles with, right? Some Christians, you're like, I don't know, I, that makes sense, you're, you're which is weird, right? So the secular worldview can say, okay, I can put you in a box. But for just normal, well-balanced people, it doesn't fit. So they have to explain it away. Either they explain it away because they say, oh yeah, well you were born in a Christian family. Right? So you have held on to your religious cultural roots. And that's why. And so your faith is just, it's, it's just the remnants of a bygone era because that's what you were raised in. Okay. That's why you're a Christian. Not because you've really thought deeply about it or had a real encounter with a living God. It's just because of your parents and their parents before them. That's the first way to explain it away. The second way to explain it away is that finding your higher power is just a step in a 12-step recovery process. And so former addicts are allowed to be radical Christians. And we can explain that away because, of course, you, you wrecked your life you're a highly unbalanced person, 
and you needed religion to get your act together, right? And so, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, he was homeless, he was on the street, and blah, 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 and now he's, yeah, yeah, he had a born-again experience, and yeah, yeah, I'm happy for him. I'm glad he's back to normal society, and he needed religion to do that for him. I, myself, I don't need religion to do that. I have, I mean, right, I'm just a smart, well-balanced person. That's the other way that, that faith is explained away. This miracle that we're talking about, this spiritual rebirth, doesn't fit any of those categories. It's not a, a religious, political label. It's not the result of being born into a Christian religious family. And it is not simply a, a functional, like, opiate to help you get over your addictions. Though the gospel is powerful to do that. But you, you just can't explain it away like that, right? The Holy Spirit is, as he says, it's the wind. It blows. You cannot explain it. You cannot control it. It's beyond what we measure and what the secular mindset wants to, kind of the box it wants to put it in. That's what it doesn't mean. Okay, what does it mean? What does it mean to experience a spiritual rebirth? And, and there's a, a number of answers we can see in this text, but I want to start with a couple illustrations, okay? One comes from the scientific kind of philosophical world. The other one comes from 90s pop culture uh, because we're in Portland and I can do that. Um, first, the, the scientific illustration. Um, Thomas Kuhn wrote a book in the early 70s called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And it, it, it created a radical shift in the, the world of philosophy and, and scientific inquiry. And he challenged... The, the, the kind of previous view that, that science was simply the accumulation of new evidences and discoveries. And it always just kind of grew in, a, in a, a curve line going up and to the right. Right? If you've heard of the word uh, or concept paradigm shift, it's this book that brought that idea to like modern lingo and thinking, okay? He changed, he said, no, no, science doesn't just, you don't just keep adding on new discoveries. And that's why we believe what we believe about science in whatever realm you think of. He says, no, no, science is, it operates within a paradigm. And you have a set theory that, that you, you use to explain all of the data that you observe in the world. And, and so you have that theory and then you hang on it, all your observations of the world. And then, but as that goes on, and as new observations come, there's some anomalies that occur, right? There's some chinks in the armor. There's little pieces that don't fit and cannot be explained by the existing theory. And so the process of normal science begins to change, but no one is willing to step off the boat, right? And, be, and, and create another explanation until there is another theory, to, like another boat to jump onto. And so, and then when there's a new boat, you, people start to do radical science. They start to say, how does this data that I observe fit into this new theory? And so the, the best illustration he uses is, is the uh, Copernican revolution, right? Going from a geocentric view of the universe to a heliocentric, right? The, the sun is the center, right? If you observe everything in life, right, you see the sun rising, and then setting, and you, you think the earth is the center, 
you, you explain that data in a certain way. But then as, as other discoveries show up, they say, well, there's something about the mood, the moon and the way the horizon works that, that our geocentric uh, cosmology doesn't explain, right? And then Galileo and these other, uh, other people start to propose, what if the sun is the center? Or actually, they, they propose some data. Look, this proves that the sun's the center of the universe. Okay, now all of a sudden, you have to rethink everything, right? A new paradigm emerges and science begins to operate now in this, through this new theory. When we talk about a spiritual rebirth, that's kind of like what we're talking about. That it's not turning over a new leaf. It's an entire transformation of paradigm, of thinking. You have to, where, where it's like a, the egocentric universe. That's me. I'm at the center. This rebirth takes you out. It puts Jesus at the center I have to rethink everything, right? I have to, how, how, do, how do I think about my vocation, my money, my sexuality, my family, my, like, my speech, my everything? It, it all gets rethought through this new paradigm. One way to think about it. Here's the other way. Here's the 90s pop culture one. And it hasn't been used, used for at least a decade in church, so I'm allowed to do it. The great... 1999 movie, The Matrix, okay? Most of us have seen it. It's been a while, okay? The premise is, right, that all of humanity, right, have been taken over by, by these machines, by the, and, and we actually are all living in, like, these, um, these, like, tanks, and we're all attached to all these, uh, these wires, and we're like the batteries, our life essence is the battery powering this, this huge computer, and we're dreaming, and all of our life is a dream, and it's like a virtual reality uh, of, the, of the world, right? And, and uh, Keanu Reeves is the main character, right? And, and, uh, and Morpheus comes to him and he says, you know what? He says, there's a different reality, but you have to make a decision. Do you want to stay asleep? Do you want to be content being a battery powering this, this system? Uh, or do you want to wake up? Do you want to leave the illusion and the dream, and do you want to see life as it is? You're going to leave comfort. You're going to leave the illusion. You're going to leave just kind of the tent, contentment of things as they are, and you're going you're to enter into a world of war, a world of, of, of facing resistance and challenge and suffering, because you're going to see reality as it is. And reality is, is, actually, is actually pretty gnarly. And it's the two pills. He said, which one are you going to take? Blue pill, you take it, and you go back to life as, as, as it was before. You forget about this, and you just, you're just fine. You take the red pill, you wake up. And, and your real life begins. Okay, that, that, that's this picture. Which, which pill are you going to take? Do you want to step out of the illusion into this reality of 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 new life in Christ. Just a couple points from the text. We see that it's something that only God can do, this spiritual rebirth, right? Only from heaven. Only God does it. It's a cleansing of shame and impurity as we walk into the light. It prepares us to walk into God's light so we don't have shame before people and we don't have shame before our creator. And it comes through looking at Jesus and trusting in him. It's an entirely new beginning. That's the image of birth 
right? <laughs> New life from scratch, from the beginning. And then it transforms us from the inside out. Look at uh, John the Baptist, right, in that, that last section of this, this chapter. And his affections, his heart for God, and the difference between him and Nicodemus. There's a, uh, a great classic work of theology called Religious Affections, written by Jonathan Edwards. He was a, a, a pastor, and he lived during the greatest re revival of Christian faith in American history. They call it the Great Awakening, right? You read it in secular textbooks. It was so big. And uh, he was wrestling with, with all of, like, thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus, and thousands of people having these powerful, what they called religious experiences, Right? Deep emotions and weeping and crying out and all these manifestations. And it was making all these, like a lot of people feel uncomfortable because you're not supposed to be that excited about God and this is a little crazy. And he's trying to discern what are real fruits of a spiritual rebirth, what, what actually shows that someone's been spiritually reborn, and what's just kind of extra, what's just fluff, what, what may or may not actually be evidence of that rebirth. And he he thinks through it and wrestles through it, and, and when he gets down to it, he, he says, you know what? There are expressions of religious emotion that, at the end of the day, may or may not have anything to do with a true spiritual rebirth. You, you can go into a worship service, you can experience the music, you can feel the crowd, right? And you can feel and experience God. I believe that can be real. But you, you can also go to a U2 conference, uh, concert and experience similar emotions, right? With your, you're with your lighter, right? Waving back and forth. So may or may not, right? And, and he says you can have these feelings. You could have all these religious traditions and activities. You can go to church. You can read your Bible every day. You can talk a lot about God. You can evangelize. You can, and you know what? It, it might be your own ego trip. Simply doing religious activities does not necessarily show spiritual rebirth. And then after like basically like kicking over all the tables and like, and like nope, this might not mean anything, this might, you're like, what's left? And he says, this is what's left. This is what's foundational. And it's an inner heart transformed that has delight and joy in the glory and beauty of Jesus for his own sake. And you see that in, in John the Baptist. I, I think there, there's some celebrity pastors out there. There's some ways that you can get caught up in ministry and in the things of God where as, as you are really successful at church life, right, you get lots of props. And you become popular as you make Jesus popular. I think that's why there's a, we often hear about celebrity Christian leaders falling, right, into sin and falling away from ministry, because there can be a time where, man, this is really working well for me. The more I, I get all these accolades. The better I am at this religious stuff, man, the better I feel about myself and the more praise I get. But it's not about the joy in Christ. It's not about Jesus. And, and when you see it in John the Baptist, he says, as Jesus increases, I am decreasing. And that's that second piece, a delight and joy, and joy in God and his presence and a genuine brokenness of spirit. A humility of spirit. Edwards describes this lowliness of spirit where there's just, there's, 
there's, I mean, the word humble just doesn't get to it, right? But there's just this, and you, you, you know it when you see it, of a tenderness and softness of heart of someone that's been in the presence of God that you look at and you're like, I, 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 I know people like this where you go into the conversation and you know, man, that, that guy or that gal, they're amazing. They've lived faithfully with Jesus for years. They've accomplished all these great things. They're just awesome. They're so much smarter than me. They're so much holier than me. All those things, right? And then you, you come away from the conversation somehow being convinced that you were the one blessing them. Right? N- not because you're proud. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, but because they're so humble, they let you know how much they appreciate you talking to them. How they, how they appreciate and are thankful for you, and it's just like, how can this person be so great and not realize it, right? That, that's some of the fruit and that evidence of the spiritual rebirth. And then finally, in closing, why is this essential? 3.7 says it so clear. You must be born again. He says, don't marvel at it. Don't be surprised at it. This is true. You must be born again. And there's at least two reasons for that, and that's what we'll end on. The kingdom of God and the eternal life of God is a life of in the light of God's presence and goodness. And as I, I said before, we cannot enter that presence on our own, cleaning up ourselves, getting our own act together. It's not about just turning over a new leaf. I'm just going to find a new community, and it's going to be the Christians instead of the the drug addicts or the punk rockers or whatever, right? No, it's, it's this transformation that only God does. He washes us clean. He clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. And, and that's what allows us to step into it. And if you don't experience it, you cannot step into that life. Either you'll be afraid of it, you'll never feel good enough, and so you'll avoid God and you'll avoid his people. Or you will boldly step into it and be under God's wrath and be under his judgment. And I know in our culture we have a hard time with that idea, but this is what it says. This is the judgment. Light comes into the world. That's the judgment. He just shines his light. He just shows who he is. And and we have that decision. Are we going to step into it? Now, we like to hold judgment for ourselves, right? I want to be the judge of myself and my life and of every one of you because then I feel better about myself. (laughs) And the, the call to believe in God as the just judge is to say, God, you're the only one who is good enough, holy enough, loving and merciful enough to be trusted with the authority to judge. I can't do that. And so when I give that up, up, and I just confess, okay, God is a just judge. He's a good father. He's a loving, merciful God, but he's a just judge. When I say that, I just mean I'm not in charge anymore. I don't get to judge. God does, and I trust it to him. That's what it means to believe in God as judge. And when I keep it, when I say, no, no, yeah, God is an angry judge. What? I don't believe in that. I'm saying I'm going to be judge. That's what leads to chaos and brokenness in our lives. Right? We know this. We know this. A society of ang- anarchy is when everyone gets to be judge. 
right? Judge, jury, executioner, right? That's, that's all our, our jobs. But we know if we want a just and civil society, we need to outsource judgment, right? We outsource it to a judicial system. We outsource it to a legal system. And we have a very imperfect legal system, right? But when it works, we are so thankful for it. We know that inherently, intrinsically, in all of society. But somehow we think in our relationship with God, uh uh-uh, he doesn't get to be judge. I gotta be judge. No. Just like we, we don't cap our neighbor because he does something we don't like, we, we entrust it to our legal system, the issues that we have. In the same way, we got to trust judgment to God. And he invites us into eternal life. And there is joy in that. And I want to invite you this morning, wherever you're at, take the red pill. Like, be willing to wake up from your slumber, from your comfort, from keeping yourself on the throne. And for, for those of us that have been believers for many years and we're like, and kind of go back and like check the date of when we ate the red pill, I want to warn you. You, you, you can't rest on your laurels. The spiritual rebirth is, not, is a historical event. It happens once, but it is evidenced by a persevering faith, faith that continues. And just like in the great movie, The Matrix, in in the trilogy, the battle continues. In fact, the battle starts once you wake up, right? You you can't rest. You can't stop. The battle starts. You've woken up. And there's things in our paradigm where we're still thinking in a geocentric paradigm. We're still thinking in an ego, self-centric paradigm. And, And we've been transferred into his kingdom. He's given us this new paradigm where Jesus is the center, and we're still using our old math. We're still using our old science to try to make sense of things. We're wondering why our, our life is, is in disarray. So this is a call to set our lives back to that, that center uh, that Christ has established for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are, you are worthy, that, you are, that we can trust you with judgment, that you will take care of things, you will set things to rights. Thank you that we can trust you with our shame, with our nakedness, with our, uh, with our sin and our brokenness, and that you, you say, I will wash you clean. And I think of that picture of baptism, that he washes us clean, and, and we, we rise up again, a new life, a new person, and, and we, do, we still have old ways of thinking, our appetites and our tastes and our affections still, uh, still sometimes reek of that old life, so God, would you cleanse us anew? Would you set us straight in our, in our, our, our paradigm, in our thinking, in our feeling, in our, in our way of living? Thank you for your people and for this church and, and your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.